Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, a very good morning after Christmas New Year break. Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning to all our listeners out there. It's actually... Well, apart from getting up early, and it is darkish at 6 o'clock in the morning now, now, so the days are shortening. But apart from the getting up at 6 in the morning, um, it's good to be back in harness again. I sort of missed the program over the summer break. So, yes, it's nice to be back again, and hopefully we're going to have a fantastic um, gardening year. I mean, we've had rain. We have At least had a rain. lot of us have had rain, uh, which has been fantastic. So There's more forecast, too. Yes, which is fabulous. Well, I do have to say the ups and downs of the weather as far as warmth and, uh, and cold have been it's somewhat... It's been crazy. It's been madness. I mean, <laughs> half my plants don't know what's going on. I've got autumn colour already setting in. Come in on, I don't things. know what's going on. Yeah, well, How can true. they? <laughs> yeah, that's true. And those gorgeous tomatoes that Penny gave us uh, earlier in the year before Christmas have grown into beautiful shrubs with almost no fruit still. Oh, I've got green fruit well, well, I have, but they're sort of about the size of a large marble. Oh at no, this mine point. are a bit bigger. Yeah, but you know, it's already well into February, and I haven't even I got know. anything that looks like a vaguely edible tomato yet. But aren't they fabulous plants? They're because beautiful. Because they're so sturdy and yeah. such thick stems. Yeah, I'd grow them almost as an ornamental. Yes, and that's probably you how could. they're going to be this year anyway. <laughs> but oh, well. uh, yeah, but you know, other things have done well. I've you know been cropping madly with my beans, both the scarlet runners and the and the bush beans and you know had plenty of greens in the garden so it's been fantastic the sweet corn's only just starting to flower okay so but you know i'll get a crop it'll just be slightly late-ish yes yep. um so but you know the rest of the garden i mean i although i've done a fair bit of watering as one always does in the middle of summer in in southern australia i haven't had the same pressure this year because we've had those nice little breaks with some rain and some cool weather so it's just taken the edge off the summer for us at yes. least which is yes. good Yeah, so so the garden's not looking too bad, really, considering it's February. Excellent. I've even got green in the grass. Excellent. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) I tell you one thing I do have, and that is a great big kangaroo that's coming in and cropping every every evening. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, as long as he's dealing with the grass and not the vegetable garden, that's No, 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 he's dealing... Well, he did jump into the veggie garden one day, but he didn't tread on a single tomato plant. Really? Thank goodness, yes. And he he just (laughs) jumped in and jumped out again because I've got a fence because it's rabbit proofed. Uh, but yeah, but I, not giant rabbit proofed. No, 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 no. Obviously not kangaroo size proof. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I, I had to put down a new bit of lawn where where I had to have plumbers come in and dig up a whole swathe of of grass. Oh, yeah. And of course, I was madly watering that and getting it all established, so it was about so high, you know, say even up to a foot high. Yeah. Beautiful green grass. Well, he's been in seventh yeah. heaven. Oh, good on him. Oh, well, you very haven't had close. to mow it yet then. <laughs> no, no, very close to the house. So, yeah. you know, we well, keep sort of saying, oh, he's back, he's back. Yeah, well, that's sort of nice. It's lovely it is to have nice the wildlife in a way. close in. Yeah, yeah, no, it's lovely. As long lovely. as they're not doing too much harm to no, the garden. No, 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 no. At least they mainly concentrates on the grass. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. Well, that's all he's been eating, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Good morning, Gwen and Roger Elliott. <laughs> good morning, everybody. Hello there. <laughs> Again, long time no see. Well, we haven't been here this year so far. No, this is so our first time, but this is the same for almost everybody. It is. So it's there we go. Is. Yep, yep, fantastic. And we've got heaps to talk about this morning. But I must say also a very good morning to Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Garden in Rose Farm in Clombinane. Morning, Graham. Good morning, everybody out there in listening land. 
Um, it, it's nice to be in a studio with such esteemed people. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I thought I was broiled, not steamed, but anyhow. <laughs> M- me and my roses feel very humble. <laughs> And how have the roses fared over oh, this summer? Sam, Pam's been disgusting in our place. We have so much Too rain. Many. But I tell you what, we had a day of 90 mil of rain mm. and flooded us out. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, magnificent. All fences had to be all repaired again. Oh. I tell you what, insurance is great, isn't it? <laughs> it really yeah. is. You, you wouldn't know? do without it, I have yeah, to say. Yeah. Um, I, I used to think that before the... Before we went through the big fires, and oh, insurance, you know, what, it's, what a con. No, no, mate. It's well worth being in. It really is. Yes. And, um, yeah, and, and our place is really, really green. We've had quite a bit of rain. And you talk about kangaroos. We have all the old, big old retired kangaroos that come into our garden. All right. And then you usually see about two or three months down the, down the, down the line, they've, they've dropped dead down along the creek. Oh. Because they're, you know, in their last days and they've been rejected by the mob. Right. Yeah, which is a bit sad in some ways. Okay. But th- I tell you what, they're big bucks. Yeah. They're big fellas. So, and, uh, so you're the equivalent of the nursing home. Yeah. Well, um, I <laughs> get. Retirement it, I walk around the garden uh, w- with a great big plastic di- uh, dish, around about uh, in the old language, three foot across, and I belt it with a plastic pipe. It sounds like a gun. <laughs> right. And, and they clear out. And they're off. They get out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because we, you, you can't have them in amongst the roses. Yeah. And then they, they'll bring their mates. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have that. Yeah. But uh, it, but it, it is interesting, and um, we keep the wombats out because we've got a special fence that's lapped at the bottom with, All the, right. with the mesh at the bottom. Yeah, like you uh, do for rabbits too. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And they'll wander along the fence and find a weakness in the fence, and they'll dig down and try and get through. Right. Yeah, oh, they're they're good. They're cool. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh well, it keeps you on your toes, Graham. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. All right. Um. I will go straight to community announcements because uh, we've got a few and then uh, heaps and heaps to talk about. Um, and, Roger, first, first thing on my list, of course, is something that's happening today down at Cranbourne. Oh, yeah. <coughs> Fine, Pam. I think that's probably all fully booked out. Is it? Down. Yeah. So that's I'm not a, surprised. No. So that, that actually we've got um, a lady, author... Gabriel Baldwin, she goes. She likes to be called Gay, but Gabriel Baldwin, she's t- talking about uh, things my garden taught me. She's developed a garden over the last 25 years down at Yanaki, mm-hmm. and so all the trials and tribulations, she she paints them all very vividly. All she's learnt, and death, life, and everything else in between, and trying to maintain a garden. So she's talking about that. That should be a good morning. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there's no point in me giving out more details. No, but I ca- can mention that the book is available. It's published by Wakefield Press. Okay, yep. Things My Garden Taught Me, Gabriel Baldwin, and it, uh, I think it sells for around about $29 or so. It's okay. It's a small book, but it's, she really writes well, really good. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. I think she lectures in literature. Uh, she's uh, retired uh, now. She's retired now, but yeah. uh, look... Borrow it from your library because it's it's a wonderful read. It really is. It's very easy to read. The chapters are all short. I think there's about 26 chapters. But she writes, you know, she incorporates literature and music and life okay. into her garden. It's, it's a great read. So if you can't buy it, grab it from your library. 
Well, it also sounds like if someone's trying to establish a garden, there'd be lots of helpful yeah. hints in there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. 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 yeah, excellent. Okay, now the other thing that's on today is um, uh, a guided walking tour being conducted by Friends of the Melton Botanic Garden. Now, this is uh, during National Sustainable Living Festival. They're taking a guided walking tour through the ever-developing Melton Botanic Gardens to see plants that tolerate a dry climate and low water requirements. Now, the gentle walk is about 90 minutes, followed by a free morning tea. Highlights are going to be the natural features, the dryland eucalyptus arboretum, Western and South Australian garden beds, bush foods garden, sensory garden, southern African garden, uh, Mediterranean garden, Californian, Central and South American bed, and the indigenous plantings uh, along Ryan's Creek and beside the lake. So, as I said, it's happening this morning, 10 a.m. through till noon. Uh, now, John Bentley, our good friend, suggests arriving at about 9.45. You meet at the depot, which is at 21 William Street in Melton. And uh, <coughs> if you haven't replied, uh, you could uh, phone John this morning uh, and just leave a message if he's not answering, uh, just to say you're coming. His number is 9743-3819. That's 9743-3819. 3819. Now, the nursery is going to be open uh, for that walk as well. Uh, the nursery is at the same address, 21 William Street in Melton. It'll be uh, uh, including an incredible range of plants. And if the full plant list is up on the Friends website. So if you'd like to have a quick look at what's on offer before you head down there, uh, just go to fmbg.org.au. That's fmbg.org.au, and you can bring up the full uh, plant list for that one. Now, coming up, uh, St Valentine's Day, which, of course, is Friday the 14th, next Friday. Uh, Friends of Burnley Gardens have got their annual St Valentine's Day dinner in the Burnley Gardens, starting at 6 o'clock. Um, you can come and join them for a lovely dinner under the new Wisteria Arbour and uh, dinner that will then be followed by a talk at 7.30 by Sandra Pullman and Sandra's going to be talking about Charles Brogue Luffman. He was the first principal of Burnley Horticulture, Horticultural College, a man of all-round abilities. He developed the Burnley Gardens as we largely know them today and he did much to encourage the admission of women students at Burnley. Now, uh, the details, as I said... Uh, it's Friday the 14th um, now they did say if you want to go to the dinner RSVP by Friday but if you get in early I, I, I think they might still let you in for that one uh, the ver venue of course is Burnley College 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond 6 o'clock for the dinner follow the signs to the Wisteria Arbour 7.30 for the talk you meet at main building room 10 uh, the dinner cost is $35 the talk if you're just coming for the talk, $10 for members, $20 for non-members. And as I say, if you want to get into the, the, the dinner, bookings are essential. Uh, go to Try Booking, uh, which is just trybooking.com forward slash capitals B-I-B-K-F. But uh, otherwise, you could give the friends a call and their number is 9035. 6815, that's 9035 6815.
Now, uh, Open Gardens Victoria have got a very special opening coming up next weekend. In fact, it's an opening of four different gardens, all within 10 minutes' drive of each other. And uh, although they're general openings, uh, they do have a special $30 ticket available online or at the gate if you want access to all four gardens. So that, of course, is a um, a, a big discount. Uh, now, all the gardens, uh, if you just want to go to one or two gardens, they'll all be $8 apart from one, which is uh, a $10 charge. Now, I'll give you the details of the gardens. The first one is Shipway Lodge. It's at Greenwood Avenue in Sorrento. It's a renowned historic property on two acres. It's been in the same family for 110 years, and the property features original Sorrento limestone buildings, a rose-covered walled vegetable garden, deep mixed perennial borders, and a giant Monterey cypress. There's a beautiful old golden elm, provides colour and summer shade. And uh, as I said, you can get individual tickets for $10 uh, for that one. And uh, the other gardens I'm going to mention are all $8 at the gate for those ones. So the next one, which is nearby, is Point King Road Garden. This is at 17 Point King Road in Sorrento. This is a tranquil, beautifully refined Mediterranean-style garden nestled into the coastal sand dune environment. It has a gentle curved driveway lined with ornamental pears and stone walls, underplanted with rosemary, and that leads you to a more formal garden area filled with the soft green and grey hues of bay, hedges, lavender and olives. Uh, and proceeds from uh, this garden will be donated to Guide Dogs Australia. Now, the third one coming up, this is one specially for plant lovers. This is West End Garden. This is at 57 Duffy Street in Portsea, uh, which celebrates the beachside environment and incredible views over the Sorrento Golf Course. Uh, a grouping of 250-year-old Moona trees are the sculptural highlight of the garden, while the rear garden is filled with pots and plants of all shapes and sizes and clever cultural pieces. Now, finally, 10 minutes away from that one is the last one, 100 Backbeach Road, which, of course, is at Portsea as well. And this is a clever transformation of a disused tennis court into a folly garden with raised garden beds, espalier trees and central glasshouse. The entrance is grand with large black gates and an espaliered pear tree on the entry wall. And behind this entrance wall is a secret-style garden with productive raised garden beds. The old tennis umpire's chair is surrounded by pots of roses and seaside daisy and a greenhouse for pottering in any season. Uh, and at this garden, there'll, there'll be a stall selling jams and cakes uh, with proceeds going to the Sorrento Nepean Historical Society. Now, as usual, there'll be uh, garden notes and a detailed location map guiding visitors to all four gardens available at each garden gate. Uh, so, uh, as I've mentioned, if you're wanting to go to all four, there is a discount of a $30 entry fee for that one. Uh, and once again, our very good friends at Open Gardens Victoria have given us one free, free double pass to each of the four gardens. So that means for the first four listeners who want to phone in 
uh, they can get one free double pass to one of those gardens. So we've got Shipway Lodge, we've got Point King Road Garden, West End Garden and 100 Back Beach Road. Uh, two of them are in Sorrento, the other two are in Portsea, all within 10 minutes drive of each other. And uh, that number to call if you'd like to grab a free double pass for one of those gardens, the number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Now, just another one I should mention. Uh, Australian Garden History Society have got a lecture and walk coming up. Uh, this will be uh, given by Dr Monique Weber and it's entitled The Lost Sculptures of Fitzroy Gardens. Now, uh, it's in two parts because, firstly, there is a lecture about it uh, Wednesday evening, which is on the 19th of February, starting at 6 o'clock, and then there is a Sunday walking tour on the 23rd of February, starting at 2 o'clock, actually in the Fitzroy Gardens in East Melbourne. So for the walking tour, you meet at 1.30 in front of the conservatory by the Diana Sculpture. And uh, for the lecture, it's at Mural Hall, National Herbarium, Birdwood Avenue in South Yarra. Now, if you'd like more information about all of this, uh, you can contact Robin uh, and uh, her contact details are Robin, uh, uh, sorry, Robin Robbins, Robin Robbins, all one word with a two on the end, robinrobbins2 at gmail.com. But I will give you out her mobile number, which is 0418-353-528. That's 0418-353-528. Bookings are online. Again, go to trybooking.com forward slash and all capitals B-H-Y-Y-G, that's B-H-Y-Y-G, all in capitals. So www.trybooking.com forward slash B-H-Y-Y-G for that one or give Robin a call on 0418-353-528. Okay, Roger, very special exhibition coming up starting 17th of February. And this is one that uh, we had we had our good friend Alex Smart come in last year onto the program to alert a lot of our listeners yep. that this was coming up, but it's now all about to happen. That's right. This exhibition, it's called Australian Plants Revealed, and the big long subtitle is 65,000 Years of Traditional Plant Use and 250 Years of Science. Now, it's being held at the Maroondah Federation Estate Gallery. It's a nice gallery, fairly close to the Ringwood Railway Station, and it's at 32 Greenwood Avenue, Ringwood. So it starts on the 17th of February to the 17th of April. Now, it's celebrating especially um, Lieutenant Cook. He was called Captain Cook, but he wasn't really a captain. Did you know that? No. There you go. (laughs) something before we even go. What an imposter. (laughs) No, he he never wanted to be called captain, I gather. But anyway, so this is uh, celebrating the voyage that had on board uh, Joseph Banks 
and Daniel Salander. Now, Joseph Banks was um, born to a very wealthy family and uh, he helped fund this trip and he brought, I think he had about 15 people in his entourage on the, uh, the endeavour. And uh, so they went, they were collecting all up the eastern coast of Australia. And so this exhibition is showing specimens that were some specimens that were collected on this collecting trip. And uh, it's being done in, um, I suppose, jointly. It's, it's by the Australian Plant Society. They're the ones who've really got it moving. But uh, the Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne are involved because they've loaned six specimens, including a Banksia serrata, the original specimen that was collected in the Botany Bay region. Um, so these specimens we on display, but they've also photographed using a special technique where they can photograph in layers upon layer upon layer of about 31 other specimens of plants that were collected on this on this uh, voyage. And uh, some of them, people have had trouble uh, actually working out whether they're real or not real. So they'll, they'll be part of the display. You mean whether they're real or whether they're photographs because yeah, they're sorry. just so three-dimensional. They, they are very good, yeah. So it, it's, it also the exhibition does recognise, you know, this uh, tremendous or vast indigenous use of these plants over such a long history too. So it's, it covers both aspects. So, And also there's going to be two lectures given on Saturday the 28th of March, one will be by Professor Tim Entwistle, who's the Director and uh, Chief Executive of the Botanic Gardens, and there also will be an Aboriginal uh, speaker too on that, t- that day. People have to book for that, but you can go to the uh, Australian Plant Society website and uh, if you just go into there and put Australian Plants Revealed, it'll give you all the information about that very special day and very special, you know, month, really. So, And also, Kawara Garden, up in the Dandenongs, they are also running an a exhibition more or less at the same time. It starts a day later. But um, So that'll be covering lots of, uh, I think, photographs, artworks, and also craft works, um, which are also telling similar stories to what you'll be seeing at, uh, at the exhibition at Ringwood. So that's called Australian Plants Revealed, 17th of February to the 17th of April at the Maroondah Federation Estate Gallery. Now, it's, the, the gallery is, will be open on Saturday afternoons, but it's closed on Sundays, I think, from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, Sundays and public holidays. Yes, so that's right. But it, uh, so... Really well worth having a look at. Easy to get to by public transport. And uh, so we hope lots of people will go along and visit. I think it's going to be really, really exciting. I mean, to actually think that these are the, you know, a couple of the real plants that Banks actually um, captured, took back to England, and here they are, back on our soil, and surviving, obviously. They must be... You know, incredible, and and we've been so lucky that they've lent them to us. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that's right. This is a thing that the, the gardens don't usually do. Yes, but um, they they saw the 
the value or the importance of, uh, of displaying these sort of things. And, uh, of course, there are about 300 different specimens in the National Herbarium at the Botanic Gardens which were collected on banks uh, or the, the Cook Voyage yes, right. in that time. So, right. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, we don't have an opportunity, none of us have an opportunity to see these specimens very much at all, if ever, mm. you know. And so well, it's it, a bit better now. They are running tours of some of these things. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, I mean, it's rarely that you get to, to see them and certainly put together in an exhibition like this. Uh, and I have been asked to mention, too, that the Australian Plant Society is donating back these framed three-dimensional photos, which it's, oh, I can't get my head around these three-dimensional photos. It's a bit like, you know, creating um, replacement hips on a photocopy machine. You know, this modern technology is just incredible. And people are sort of, I gather, have been looking at these photos and saying, that's not a photo, that's the real thing, you know. So if you're interested in photography, come and have a look just from that aspect. Oh, yes. But the Australian Plant Society is donating back um, these images to, framed to the herbarium so that they will be able to use them in future displays and, um, you know, maybe, I won't say trick people into thinking that they're the real thing, but, you know, it's really exciting. Roger mentioned that there's a train station very close to the exhibition site. Also, for those who aren't on the Lilydale Ferntree Gully lines or something, um, it's close to Eastland's shopping centre and I think buses come to Eastland from Oakley and Macedon and... <laughs> <laughs> Not sure about Macedon, but yes, yeah, certainly from far afield. Yeah, from yes. across where the rail lines don't go. So right. there's various ways of getting there and um, you could find out on, you know, bus routes or Google or mm. whatever. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. All right, it's probably high time we invited our listeners to join us this morning. If you'd like to ask a gardening question, we have uh, Stephen Ryan, Gwen and Roger Elliott and Graham Sargent all in the studio this morning. So plenty of people to, uh, to try and answer your queries. Uh, do give us a call. The number is 94190155. Or this morning we have Carol on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Carol... Nine four one nine eight three double seven. Incidentally, the uh, free double pass to Shipway Lodge uh, in Sorrento has gone, but we still have a free double pass to Point King Road, to West End, and to 100 Back Beach uh, available. If you'd like to give us a call on nine four one nine zero one double five for one of those free double passes. Okay. Graeme, you've brought in a rose. How pretty about in, telling us about pretty it? Pretty in pink. <laughs> pretty in pink, yes. Gosh, there's so many blooms on it. Uh, yes, it, it's uh, salmon pink, and um, an ideal rose perhaps for a pot or would make a fantastic border. And it's reputed in the rose world to be one of the most prolific roses that have ever been bred. And bred, bred by the famous Cordy's people in Germany that bred the white iceberg and many thousands of others. And... Um, uh, a, a rose that from where we've had it in the garden at the nursery it'll flower non-stop for nine months wow a really a really a great flower and around about 40 petals on each each of the um, blooms they're not 
big, big flowers, though, right. are they, Graham? Right. It's a it's a moderately small flowered rose, but mm. it's, uh, it's it's just a mass prolific. of them. <laughs> yes, yeah, fantastic, more and also it goes well. Carpet roses, um, much more prolific than the carpet. Oh roses. well, they're pretty good. Oh well, some of them are really good. The pink in in the flower carpet roses has been fantastic. The red is a little bit light on. Mm. Yeah. Um, but there's seven in the series of the flower carpet roses, and there's 90 million of them being sold worldwide, <laughs> yes. which I think is a brilliant effort on behalf of the Teslas. I'll say. Yes, I yes. think marketing so is magic. This one is? It's called... Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, because we hadn't got to that <laughs> point, I'm sure. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Well, there you well, go. I think that's a fantastic name. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is called Busy Bee. Busy bee. Well, uh, th- that would reflect you too, Yeah, Stephen, that would well bee. do. <laughs> <laughs> could well do. Well, it's yeah. a very charming, you know, I mean, if you want a really good pink, yeah. bushy rose, mm. it'd be hard to beat that. Well, f- listeners, if Stephen has said that about a rose, we're yeah. on it. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, shame it's not called after me. But anyhow. <laughs> okay, well, we've got our uh, first caller in, and we're going to go to uh, Carol, who's in Croydon. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. I'd like to mention that Croydon Garden Club have got a speaking coming next Tuesday mm-hmm. to talk about the Queensland fruit fly. Okay. And it's someone from Yarragut Valley Agribusiness and she's going to tell us what to do about the, if we find the fruit and what to look for and what the fly looks like. Right. Now, now this is being held in the Elderly Citizens Club, the corner of Mount Dandenong Road and Civic Square, Croydon. And it's over the road from Arndale Shopping Centre, which makes it much easier to find. And plenty of parking, and it's on Tuesday the 11th, which is next Tuesday at 7.30. Excellent. And yeah. do people need to RSVP? No, no. Just no, turn just up? Hunt up. Okay. Yes, we'll hunt up more chairs if we need them. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> fair. Because there was a lady no, on last week. Like a week. That's right, Sorry. yes, last week. Yeah, yeah and, and we I thought, well... Most people don't know, and it's good that this woman is coming to a garden club to talk because garden club members talk to one another, and if you know what to look for and how to deal with the fruit that's got fruit fly in it, it'll make a big difference. Yes, I think that's excellent that you're putting on this talk. Very timely. Yeah, and I thought if I ring up, it'll get a broader audience. um, That's great. other garden clubs might contact the Yarrick Valley agribusiness and get the same speaker to talk to them too. Yep, good idea. Just, yep. just give out the address again, Carol. Uh, now, it's the corner of Mount Dandenong Road and mm. Civic Square, Croydon, um, and it's the Elderly Citizens Club. Okay. And yep. the t- starting time? The time is 7.30. Yes. And it's next Tuesday. Fantastic. All right, good. thanks so much, Carol, for that one. Good. Okay. Thank you, that's beautiful. Bye. Yes, it looks like we're up for it, isn't it? Yes, We've been it does. so smug about the fact that we, that didn't, we didn't get have fruit it. fly down I know. here. Yeah. Mm. Oh dear. Yes. The uh, next major blight we've got to deal with. Yes. Uh, just uh, a little note that uh, the Point King Road Garden uh, free double pass has also gone now, so that means that uh, we just have two free double passes to West End Garden, which is at 57 Duffy Street in Portsea, and to 100 Back Beach Road in Portsea. Uh, so we have a free double pass 
one for each of those gardens still available if you'd like to ring in and have a chat to Louise. The number is 94190155. Okay, Stephen, let's go to what you've brought in. All right, and reminder to all those people out there who are into social media, uh, the images of these plants are um, available on our Facebook page. Fantastic. So go and have a look at them as well. Um, A genus, and I've brought two different ones down this morning, but I'll talk about one to start with. A genus that I have a great soft spot for is the genus Clethra. Now, Clethra's a surprisingly large genus. There's about 80 species, and it has a weird distribution. There's a whole series of them in North America and down into Central America. Then there's uh, a whole group of Asian ones, and there's also one from Madeira, (laughs) which sort of seems slightly odd. they are deciduous or evergreen shrubs up to small to medium trees. Uh, they are pretty well, as far as I know, all summer flowering. Uh, they have spikes of small fluffy flowers on them. And the scent of most of the clethras is quite unique. It's a very musky sort of perfume. Once you've smelt a clethra, it's one of those scents you'll go, oh, there's a clethra in flower, because it doesn't smell like anything else. Okay. So it's got a really interesting scent. And the big evergreen Madeiran one is quite a common plant in Mount Macedon Gardens. So you'd be, I I remember walking to school and you'd get this waft of scent from one of the gardens somewhere and you might not know exactly where the clethra is, but you know it's in there somewhere. Uh, So it takes me back to my childhood, the scent of these plants. So I guess it, you know, it has, scents always are very evocative. They take you back in in more ways than, than visual things do in some cases. This particular clethra I brought along this morning is uh, Clethra ulnifolia, which is one of the North American species, and it's a dwarf version called hummingbird. And it grows to about a metre tall by about a metre wide. Uh, it has pure white flowers. It has the classical clethra scent. Uh, it has a slightly suckering habit, so you end up with sort of a, a thicket of it. It doesn't run, though, so it's not going to end up as a great <laughs> mob of plants. Yep. Uh, and being deciduous, its foliage sheds in the autumn and it tends to go quite a nice strong yellow and you'll sometimes get a little bit of apricot in it as well. Okay. Uh, so its autumn foliage can be quite pleasant. Um, although it doesn't like the hottest dry spots in a garden, it's not quite like a rhododendron or azalea in that it doesn't actually need an acidic soil. So the clethras aren't sort of uh, aligned to acidic soils, although they're perfectly happy in them. And... I just think they're an underrated group of plants, and I think sometimes those things that flower in midsummer, they come out at a time when people actually often aren't visiting nurseries, and so therefore they miss them. So even if you're not wanting to plant one right now, and I can understand people being hesitant about planting things in the summer, yep. um, it's still a good idea to go out and visit the nurseries, have a look at things that are in flower now, uh, because otherwise you get a, you know you get a rush of blood in the autumn or the early spring, and you go out and buy things, and you tend to buy the things that are looking good at the time, and then your garden ends up being very autumnal or very spring-like, that's right. because that's the plant you've bought. Yep. So it is really important that you get out and see what's around at the off-seasons, even if you don't buy them then. Well, mm. having said that, you can buy them and keep them in a pot. I mean, most of us can keep a pot going for a few months until we're ready to plant. Um, and I just think the clethras are a, a great group of shrubs, um, and uh, they're dainty, they're elegant plants, uh, they're not too hard to grow, uh, and you can get from dwarf ones like hummingbird right up to, well, clethra arborea, the one from Madeira, mm. is often labelled with labels on it that says four metres or something like that. But at Mount Macedon, there are specimens up there, admittedly probably 80 years old or more, but that would easily be 
20, maybe 30 metres tall. Gosh. Mm. You know, so we're talking potentially really, really tall yes, plants. Yes, yes. But, of course, we all have to live long enough for that to happen. Uh, and the thing I like about the Clethra arborea is that it has a tendency to be quite narrow. So it could be a useful plant on a shady side of a house, against a fence where you don't want to annoy the neighbours too much with overhanging branches, but you want to give yourself some screening, um, it could be worthwhile considering for something like that. So I think Clethra arborea is quite nice. There doesn't seem to be a particularly bad sort of insect issue with them or anything like that. They'll occasionally get red spider mite on the evergreen ones if they're in a really sheltered site and they don't get natural rain and things, a bit like Viburnum tinus can often get. Uh, but apart from that, I haven't seen any particular issues with them. Mm. So this one's Clethra ulnifolia. So S- Stephen, how do you spell Clethra? C-L-E-T-H-R-A. Thank you. So it's reasonably easy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just think it's an underutilised genus, so we should all be perhaps looking at it a bit more. Butterflies visit? Uh, it certainly attracts the bees. Um, I notice I've got a, a Clethra fargesii, which is one of the deciduous Chinese ones, uh, growing along my driveway at the nursery, and it's always rattling with bees when it's in flower. I haven't specifically noticed butterflies uh, attracted to it, but I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be. Um, but certainly the bees love it at this time of the year. So it's a very useful uh, plant for pollinators. Mm. And with that one called hummingbird, does it mean hummingbirds, well, in our situation, honey eaters? Again, I've not noticed our small birds having a go at it. Um, I wonder whether that particular cultivar is called hummingbird because it's small. (laughs) Mm. It might have nothing really to do with small birds specifically. Um, But, um, yeah, so all I can say is I know that the insects love it. So, and, you know, that in itself is something that's important uh, at this time of the year because, you know, all that spring stuff's gone and it's nice oh, to have gosh, that continuity yes. of other things. Yep. And describing the spikes of flower, it's, you know, vaguely when you first look at, not all that dissimilar from a bottle brush sort of flower, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, the flowers are smallish and they're in long spikes, so, you know, they do get that sort of look about them and they have little stamens sticking out, which gives them a slightly fluffy look to them. Mm. Uh, but, of course, it does have true petals around the flowers, unlike the bottle brushes, which are basically composed all of stamens. Uh, But yeah, so clethra, consider it. Nice long stems, you could even use it in in an arrangement. It would pick all right. I've picked uh, uh, Arborea, the evergreen Mm. one, and used it in the house. I mean, it it doesn't have an enormously long picking life, Mm. but you'd probably get a week out of it as a cut flower, Mm. so I don't think that's too bad. Uh, And of course, because it's got this nice perfume as well, it it could be added to something nice Mm. to have in the house. Mm. Yeah, Excellent. So, yeah, so yeah. there you go. Okay, so what's the other one? Oh, now the other variety I brought along is another comparatively new one. It's also a Clethra ulnifolia, uh, so it's the same species. Right. Uh, but this one is a taller growing shrub. Uh, it'll get to probably a metre and a half, two metres tall. Tends to become what, uh, somewhat upright in its form, uh, and it's called pink spice. Uh, and clethras are almost without exception white in flower uh, so this is quite a nice break in the in the uh, in the in the color of a clethra and it's a really pretty soft shell pink uh, it still gets a nice long spikes on it it's sort of white towards the center of the flower so there's this sense of color variation within the, the spike uh, it also goes a nice autumnal color before it sheds Good. Uh, and uh, and again flowers at this time of the year and it does have that lovely sort of musky scent to the mm. to the flowers mm. and in fact some of the bigger clethras another thing I like about the taller ones or the bigger bushes and things is they often get quite attractive bark as well right, that's right so yeah. when they're dis- when they're dormant mm. 
I mean, my Fargesii down the driveway has got bark pretty well as good as any crepe myrtle. Wow. Um, so the bigger ones can get really attractive bark as well. But, of course, with a lot of those things, they take time to develop that sort of yep. effect. So don't expect uh, attractive bark immediately. Um, so, yeah, so that one's Pink Spice. And I grow quite a number of them. This year I put in cuttings for the first time of another one of the evergreen ones, one from Mexico called Pringly Eye, um, which I haven't seen flower yet, but my plant's got to quite a nice size and it looks like it's going to be quite a large uh, upright shrub. Okay. And of course, I cut all the cuttings off it this year, so I've probably stopped it flowering for another year you or two. Probably have. <laughs> I needed to get it started because it's been sitting there for some years and forgotten about. Yeah. So I've now started some cuttings of that. Um, and yes, and I've got plenty of arborea in stock, which is probably the commonest of the clethras, but still a well worthwhile growing plant. Mm. Um, and yeah, some of the other Asian deciduous ones are available at the moment too. So yes, look out for them. Excellent. Okay. Uh, all those uh, free double passes have now gone, so really? uh, don't bother to ring in anymore because uh, they have all been uh, but, given away. But those of you uh, who missed out could go in and get one of those tickets for the four gardens. The, the $30, yeah. um, yes, and discounted s- ticket yeah. and see all four gardens. Yeah, so, so well, why not indeed? Well worthwhile. Yeah. Bargains galore. Absolutely. Bargains galore. <laughs> yeah. Three come, CR. Yeah, Look, what about it? Three steak knives though. Uh, <laughs> no, keep the steak knives out of it. <laughs> uh, now we've had a, a query from the outside line. Rhonda has rung in. She'd like to know if slasher is safe to use for weeds. Um, she has used it and it worked very well, but wonders, is it really safe for all birds, pets, people, etc.? I've no idea. Yes, well, it's put, that, uh, that product's been put, uh, put out by Organic Crop Protectants. That's right. Which is now owned by Yates, and um, their uh, research has shown that it's safe with pets. Mm-hmm. Yes. It'll work, you'll see it work in about four hours, it just goes zonk. How good is it on perennial weeds, though? Does it just take the top off weeds or does it kill the weeds? No, it's not systemic. Yeah, so if I had oxalis in the garden, it might take the top off the oxalis, but it's not necessarily going to damage the bulbs. So you'd have to keep reapplying. That's right. Yes, I've heard you do need to keep reapplying in some cases. Two or or three applications and uh, just keep weakening the plant. Yeah, Mm. yeah. 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 Well, there you go. So hopefully that's answered her question. Yes, good, good, good. Now, Roger, you've brought in some plants too, and I think these are linked to um, the Friends group. Yeah. They've got a plant sale. They have, Pam, on 14th and 15th of March. Okay. Down at the Cranbourne Gardens. Um, they've got their plant sale. starts at 10 a.m. each day, but people line up, I think, from much earlier. <laughs> I'm sure they do. <laughs> do they camp overnight? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think they start selling earlier too, I think. Anyway, I've just brought in three of the plants that uh, they I gather they've got fairly good stocks of. Okay. And uh, one is Veronica Derwentiana, and the poor old Veronicas have had <laughs> lots, lots of different names. <laughs> yes. yes, they have been pushed pillar to post, haven't yeah, they? They might see Derwentia still around, but... Uh, Oh, it's Aaron area. I said perfoliata. Isn't it good that Gwen's here? Yeah, <laughs> just to keep tabs on you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Veronica. So all of the southern hemisphere things that were cut up into hebes and and duentias and whatever other genera, parahebes, all those things apparently have all been pushed back into Veronica again, as far as I understand. Yeah, I think I think there's. Um, 
New Zealand's still got the heebies. I don't think so. That, that's gone. It's got the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, yeah I, I understand heebies also been pushed okay. back into the old world Veronica genus. Because the uh, chap who did the revision, he's at Melbourne, he did one of the revisions at Melbourne Uni. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and I, anyway. That's yeah, so because I had that discussion with a botanist from Auckland Botanic Gardens uh, okay. at one stage and said, yeah. what do you think? And they said, well... Their brain can see what's happened, yeah. but uh, emotionally they can't cope with the idea of Hebe being thrown back into Veronica. Yeah. Oh, dear. Anyway, Veronica arenaria, it's a lovely plant. It might get up to a metre and a half. Oh, that's quite a decent size. Yes, plant. it is. Not in our garden. No. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, look, it responds so well to pruning. It's one of those semi-woody it's not a sh- well. It's nearly a shrub. So you could call it a sub shrub. A sub. <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether I like the word sub shrub. Yeah, it's like, a term though. It is yeah, used. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, but you could. The idea is to prune out some of the old wood yeah, each yeah. year, mm-hmm. and you can go quite hard. Mm-hmm. Take it right down to the base, and then they just come up in the flower. They they flower for probably about six months of the year. And it's a really sh- good shade of strong blue. I was yeah. going to say, he's missed the important Yeah, the thing. colour. <laughs> yes, the flower. Mm. blue flowers. You, yeah. You've got to say something, Gwen. So yeah. You can, <laughs> yeah. 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 You left that for me. Yes, yeah, that's right. What, Roger's what, just doing that on purpose. What colour is it, Gwen? Oh, it's blue, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of blue, Gwen? <laughs> Little blue, but yeah. lots of them. It's got yes. a, a yeah. slight... Tinge of violet in it, I think. Yes. Yeah, it's probably not a clear gentian blue. No, no, no. Not cobalt blue. No, no. 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 And, and but it's okay. got a nice greyish foliage, which I always yeah. think works really well with blue flowers. That sort of combination. Yeah. Yes, mm. it does. And it's quite a good cut flower if you want. If you are pruning back a plant that's still mm. in flower, take it. The petals will drop, but it, it, it does last for quite a while. Um, the flowers are smallish. They're about uh, or oh, one and a half centimetres across, maybe a bit bigger somewhat starry like but it, it's a lovely thing just flowers and flowers it'll grow in just about any situation so where's it from Roger? It, well it's from places like Queensland oh goodness and New South Wales and sometimes it's out in the semi-arid oh, areas right. amongst rocks and things like that but it also you'll find it in spots where it gets more rain oh. so, so quite, does that mean it won't work at Macedon <laughs> uh, look, I, <laughs> now, now you're pushing. I'm pushing yeah. the boundary. Yeah. No, look, it, it I reckon be. it might. It looks to yeah. me like one of those things I I would be prepared yeah. to have a crack at. It just in a bit of a sheltered yeah. area. Just yeah. about anything grows at massive and Oh no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Take my word for it, Graham. There's no. lots of things we can't grow up there. No. Although there have been some things over the years that I've got cuttings from the Elliots that are growing well. Yeah. My my cutsy is doing oh, exceedingly a, well. To remember that. That's <laughs> a wonderful plant. Yeah, I love. I think yeah, it's just yeah. got the most fabulous foliage and yeah. it's doing really well. Yeah, so good. it's growing yeah, like like the clappers and I've yeah. actually propagated it and yeah. stuff. Yeah, so good. there you go. I've added it to my slightly limited Australian native range in the nursery. Oh, is it in the hydrangea family? I'm trying to remember. But anyway... I think it's Escaloniaceae es- or something. Yeah, I, think. I think it is the Escaloniaceae. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, talking about a plant called Cutsia, it has these big heads of small cream flowers with a nice perfume quite large glossy or semi-glossy leaves yeah. it, it sort of it doesn't look like people's classic example no, no, of what no. a native plant would look like I think no, it's got that almost rainforesty yeah, look yeah. about it yeah, that's oh, right very handsome plant yeah. anyway so Veronica Araneria really highly recommended so they've got that at the uh, Growing Friends plant sale on March the 14th and 15th we've had these quite 
very strong easterlies the last few days. Have mm. you been getting easterlies? Yeah, we've had a few. Mm. And this little gardenia had lots of flowers the day, <laughs> day before yesterday. <laughs> but this is a, a gardenia called varia, and varia means variable, and it is very variable. You can get big round leaves. This is one with smallish leaves, slightly elongated leaves. The flowers are a bit over a centimetre across, uh, a pale a bright pale yellow but it flowers for once again maybe nine months of the year Mm. and it'll get up to a metre but you can keep it down much lower than that it can sucker uh, just lightly but Gardenia varia so that's G-O-O-D-E-N-I-A it's got the classical flower shape of the genus yeah that's right if it weren't in flower I would have scratched my head and said what's that thing well that's right but it, it it it's a good plant, and it'll take full sun. Mm-hmm. It's one of these plants that comes from dry areas, but also slightly uh, uh, more, you know, better climate, I suppose, for a lot of people. But it, it, it's, it's a really lovely plant because it flowers for so long, and you can just cut it back as hard as you like, and up it comes. It goes very it. well with the Veronica. Yeah, yeah, I do does. like that blue and yellow combination. Well, would you believe I chose these to go together? Oh, no, did you? Oh, well, there you go. I would have assumed so, yes. <laughs> and the other one that I've brought in is Verticordia plumosa. And this is one of the feather flowers from Western Australia. All right. And uh, the, the flowers, if you have a close look, and I think it's good at having a close look at flowers every now and again, not just having a look at great big things. Yep. Um, the bud cap what we call a calyx, is quite feathery. Okay. It's very deeply uh, divided, the, the calyx. And when that opens up, it looks as though you've got this filigree around the, the base of the petals. And it's a pink. And uh, of the verticordias, some are quite difficult to grow from Melbourne conditions, but verticordia plumosa does grow pretty well. And it, it generally grows... 50 centimetre, I reckon up to a metre, and about the same across. But the, the foliage has got quite a, a lovely perfume. Mm. And it's a nice, again, it's a nice sort of grey yeah. foliage, bluey grey, um, which would be a very nice foil for pink flowers, I would have thought. Yeah, it, it works well, Stephen. So the, all, the, these three are also good for containers. If people are just living in units or whatever, yep. they're, they're fine for containers. And the verticordia does very well in a container. Well, Joe, I reckon when you said verticordias, half the people listening would have said, ah, forget that. But verticordia plumosa is the one, of the one species, I think the main species anyway, that all the other verticordias are grafted onto so that oh, they so can be yeah. grown in Victoria. That's the rootstock. Right. So that's a verticordia that we can grow. Lots of the others are drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, they're fantastic. But, I mean, we don't want to grow everything at Macedon or Berwick or wherever. Um, Otherwise, we wouldn't travel to see other gardens. Exactly. So it's good that there's some things we can't Oh, by the way, believe it or not, yours truly is probably taking a tour of the Western Australian wildflowers uh, next year, so in in the appropriate time, uh, for Australians studying abroad. They rang me the other day and said, would I be prepared to take it on? And I said, I'm very happy to take it on as long as I have somebody who's really a proper expert about Western Australian natives on the bus with me while we're doing that. And they've said, yes, there will be. So, So I'll be doing a tour for, I think it's 13 days. Okay. I, I think it'll include an occasional winery. 
<laughs> as well. There's a, there's a few of those over there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so I've heard. Uh, but yes, yeah, so we'll be spending a bit of time looking at Western Australian wildflowers next year, so I'm quite excited by that. Right. Great. Be good fun. Great. So, so when, when's that coming? Uh, well, it'll be in the sort of early spring. I'm not sure yep. of the exact dates. Uh, I think that ASA would already have the dates locked in. So if anybody was interested, because this year I'm doing Normandy and then Chile, and next year I'm doing Spain and then Western Australia. Okay. So that's the tours that are coming up over the next two years. Okay. So, uh, yes. You're going to be saying, Stephen, safer to stay home. Yeah. No, it's not safer to stay home. You know, things can happen at home. Yeah, you can right. slip. You can slip and fall over and break your hip in the bathroom. Yep. So you might as well be travelling and enjoying life. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, if anybody wants to see the Western Australian, probably an, any number of verticordias, uh, come with me to Western Australia next um, spring. Good. Okay. So there you go. And Rod, some of these are on Facebook. Have you put them or not those ones? Yeah, I, I, did. I sent those in late to Liz. Whether she got them, I didn't check. No, they're up there. That, that, oh, they're up there. She yeah. is so efficient. I know. Yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, well, you should, should do it a little earlier than that, though. Give her a, give her a bit of a break. <laughs> I, I did some of the others earlier. Oh, fantastic. So, yep. I, I only got hold of these on Thursday afternoon. Yeah, think, right. So. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. But uh, So that plant sale, there'll be lots of other things. And, uh, you know... Good to have a look around. Plant sales, March, ready for planting. Mm. Oh, yes. It's yeah. getting well into planting time. And, of course, then. all the money raised goes back in, into the garden. They do. They do. Yes. And one of the things that the, the friends have been able to support to a very large extent is a shuttle bus, which is soon going to operate from Cranbourne Station to the garden. Oh, fantastic. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. So the, the friends, mostly, I should say, the growing friends, because they raise so much money, have been a major supporter of this, haven't they? Yeah, the friends, I think, I'm just trying to remember, I think they donated $79,000 to to go towards, and plus the Royal Botanic Gardens Foundation they've put in other, and so they'll they'll be doing that. That has been so needed for so long. So it'll be be interesting. It's it's a trial, but... um, so they've got the vehicles, and uh, so yeah, hopefully that goes well. The other thing, just to mention, the other thing, you know, where this money goes to, they've actually fenced off a lot of the bushland areas, which was getting hammered by the excess wallabies. Okay. So I think the hammered understand. Yeah. <laughs> so the friends don't know. I think it was forty-five thousand dollars. So they've been able to put in some fencing around some special areas for orchids and other things there and it's right. amazing just to see the difference since yes. the fences have yes. gone in. Fantastic. So yeah, all that money does and the money from the talk today, you know, mm. that, that goes back into the gardens. Yep. Yes, that's mm. wonderful. Mm. Well, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're uh, running through until 9.15, our usual time slot. So if you'd like to give us a call, uh, we have Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. We have Gwen and Roger Elliott. You can ask them anything you like about Australian native plants. Oh. And we also have <laughs> Graham Sargent from Silky's <laughs> Rose <laughs> Farm. <laughs> so do give us a call. That number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or if you'd like to have uh, a chat to Carol on the outside line, 94198377. Um, I think we're 
overdue for a story. You teased us before we went to air this morning, Roger, and you brought in, would you believe, of all things, a rhubarb leaf, and you said there's a story about it. Yeah. And once again, there's a picture of this rhubarb up on the the (laughs) Facebook page. (laughs) I know at one stage, it was quite a long time ago, you were talking here about... uh, Growing rhubarb in uh, containers. Yes. And people often have trouble mm-hmm. with growing containers. Well, this is out of what I've brought in this bit of rhubarb. It's out of a container. It's around about a 60 centimetre container. Okay. And, um, but what I've been doing of late, as far as feeding it or feeding the soil or the pot, is I've been using our vacuum stuff after a vacuumed. Right. I, I, I always use cream on my rhubarb, but anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a couple of geriatrics where I live, and so there's a lot of hair comes up in the uh, the vacuum. Right. Oh, so uh, my corkies might do much the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And I can always remember we were over at uh, Missouri Botanic Garden in uh, Missouri, St. Louis, over in USA, and they in their master gardeners complex, huge complex they had there um, they were doing trials on various mulches and the best growth occurring was from human hair collected from one of the, the or some of the local hairdressers right. and so they're putting this down and the growth was just fantastic huge <laughs> difference and also remember at Cranbourne when we were doing trials trying to work out what we would do to the sand down there to ameliorate it to make it better for growing plants in the trial plots the best growth not the best growth the most growth was from where they put sheep stuff down hair yeah or wool and uh, and I thought oh look I think I'll stick this on the rhubarb and it really <laughs> it really works so there you go. So the, so the detritus don't. from the vacuum, yeah, please. Yeah, and he yeah. trims his beard. Oh, yeah, well, there's that, yeah. And, yeah. I, and I put that on too. Yeah. yeah. So that's, if you've got, you know, you've got rhubarb, especially in a container. Here today, rhubarb tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you've got anyone in your family who's a hairdresser, yeah. you know, oh, well, say, look, you know, we can have your floor sweepings to put on our garden because it they had big beards over in Missouri, and it was just so obvious what was best. I gather our hair's got a lot of protein in yeah, it or something. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And um, the plants just responded so oh, well. You've just opened up a whole new world to me. See, as it is now, I go to the local IGA supermarket, and I bring home all their green waste. Yes. So virtually every night I call in there, and I bring home a box that's got lettuce leaves yeah. and yeah, green yeah. spuds, and you name it, the stuff's in there. And then I go through it, and... The stuff the chooks won't deal with goes straight into the compost. Anything like the spuds that might actually grow in the compost and be a nuisance go into my worm composting toilet system. Uh, so everything from the greengrocers mm. or from the supermarket is reused. The local cafe's coffee grounds come home to my place and that either goes into the compost or gets sprinkled across the garden beds as a component of the mulch. I probably need to start making friends to the local hairdressers yeah, you now. Do. You do, Steve. In fact, I had a very long conversation with the local council people. They've imposed what they're calling Fogo bins onto us now. They're these sort of kitchen tidies with a biodegradable bag inside that you can put kitchen scraps in and then wrap it up and it goes into your green waste bin so that it then goes off to be composted. And I said, that's all very fine, but I actually told the council to take back my green waste bins because 
I'm a you were net green it. waste yes. importer. Yes. I wasn't an exporter. Yes. Uh, and so this Fogo bin that you've now dropped on my driveway is an absolute pointless exercise as far as I'm concerned yeah. because I reuse or utilise everything. Um, so nothing goes off the property that's organic. Yep. I mean, if I decide to have a, uh, some, a special evening and we buy some oysters, the oyster shells go straight through my shredder and they turn into little tiny bits of shell grit. Mm. Um, I can't think of anything that I actually have to discard that has an organic background or origin. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, we've got a few hairdressers around. <laughs> they, they, uh, they tell me that with hair, and especially from the racing dog industry, if you want to get an indication of what the mineral makeup is for and vitamins for a dog, take hair samples. And the same thing applies to well, us. Yeah, that's right. And the same thing happens with feathers from fowls. Feathers are really good to put in your compost heap. Okay, because there's a big range of minerals and everything else that can tell you the state of your birds and the state of our human body, our existence, with hair samples. Were there any plants that wouldn't tolerate it? I don't. I mean, what's I, the range I, that yeah, they've trolled I, I, it on? I don't really know that, Pam. Okay. But, uh, Can't that, imagine there'd be any issues with it, though, because it would be a comparatively slow-release thing, whatever it's releasing yeah. back. So it's not going to be giving a huge dump of something into the ground, no, is it? Yeah. So I would have thought even in quite large quantities it probably wasn't going to do any particular harm in the garden. It's going to look slightly odd, <laughs> potentially, if you put you know straight human hair all over the place with all mm. its different colours and what have you. If we come back to domestic composting bins, what's happened to the Bakashi bins? I don't know. I haven't seen one for ages. It was a big promotion in out the Shire of Mitchell with those, and um, it's gone by the wayside. We have a, an old rubbish bin that we put all our refuse in, putrescible refuge, refuge from the kitchen, and we put a Pagashi preparation over the top that had its origins in Japan, mm. and it breaks down, and that then is tipped into the compost heap to build up the uh, micro- microbe content. Yeah, yeah. They are still for sale. Mm-hmm. I, mm. I know there's a shop I walk past in High Street, Northcote, that's still selling them. Right, and Ceres have the Bakashi preparation. Oh, yes. Um, Ceres, mm. we're you know, down in Northcote, mm. Mm. and uh, you can get the preparation there. But I couldn't get find any preparations in Bunnings, mm. okay. which is interesting. Just two things about human hair. Mm. Um, one is that um, there was uh, a few people... I've heard mention is that if you put it around plants, it's supposed to keep rabbits away. I think AB was doing a trial on some okay. of her Australian native plants. Well, it hasn't got our rhubarb. The <laughs> <rabbits> <laughs> I don't think rabbits are that interested in rhubarb, funnily um, enough. But there you go. Well, we've got hairs on yeah. the little plot. Okay. Different hairs. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the bouncy ones. Yeah, the bouncy <laughs> okay, and the other thing is that, um, and this is completely, you know, out of left field, I happen to know that um, with athletes, uh, if they're wanting to test athletes for illegal drug taking, uh, they test human hair. That's right. Because it shows up in the growth of the hair. Yes. Actually, that does raise another interesting uh, thing. What about hair that's been coloured and so forth? Would that have some sort of potential impact in the garden? Oh, look, you get rid of rhubarb. Uh, you might get purple. <laughs> yes. Although yes blue, I, rinse. blue rinse. <laughs> yeah, blue rinse rhubarb. I also think that the greener rhubarb is more tasty. Yeah. I yeah, do but I don't too. like the colour. I agree with you. Because we've the got colours some wrong. It's sort of slimy looking green rhubarb. Well, when Gwen cooked some of the other, our green rhubarb the other day, she what did you stick in it? 
Oh, well, we'd been given some um, a cordial from a blueberry farm, uh, yeah. and so I used some of that to oh, boil the rhubarb yeah. in. And how, well. how did that? Very palatable. Oh, lovely. Yes, it's really good. Mm. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, rhubarb has that reputation, doesn't it? Like other people say, oh, yes, or if you know how to prepare it well, it can be really great nutritionally. Yeah. Mm. We must get to some calls. First up, we've got our very good friend uh, Sue Stevens online. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. G'day, and Sue. And actually, I'll talk... How are you going? I'll... I'll I'll talk about rhubarb now that you've said that, not that I rang up to talk about that, but I actually cooked my rhubarb. A friend told me this with um, the same quantity of sultanas with the actual rhubarb and you don't need to add as much sugar mm. and the flavour of the two together is absolutely beautiful. There you go. There's yeah, a little cooking really well. <laughs> And cinnamon yeah. with that um, is good too. Yeah, cinnamon. cinnamon. Oh, yeah. I use very little yum. sugar. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, Stephen, I rang up, um, Roger's talking about that Veronica Arenaria. Yeah. I've grown that for at least 10 years at my property, and I've actually got some babies that I'm growing on the work heat bed. <laughs> so if you want some, I can give uh, some to Jen to give you. Oh, yeah, but I'd love to have a crack plant, Do you know, I've got that in Western Sun, and my block actually gets really cold in um, Mount Evelyn. It can even get frost on where that is, and that plant's never been affected by it. But um, having having a cottage garden, I've got um, Australian natives and um, a lot of South African plants. That actually works really well because I love to add blue, and I was using um, salvia marine blue, but that Veronica. Do you know, I reckon that flowers for nine months, Roger. My, I think it's only winter yeah. Yeah, that, that it doesn't flower. You're right. But the, be- I didn't want the beauty of it is, is that you can... I don't have mine that high. I actually cut mine down to about 40 centimetres and it'll flower on oh, yeah, um, if right. you cut it half back too. So, yeah, there are and a few... Also, dif- there are a few different selections around too. Some are more, you know, smaller than others too. Yeah. Oh, are they? Mm. Yeah, I, I had it actually. It'll grow in shade, and I actually had it. Well, I moved it from the shade spot. Yeah. But if you put it in the shade on a bank, it'll actually grow down the bank with the flowers at the bottom. But it doesn't need any water. That plant. No. Fantastic. It's, it's good. really good. Good on you, Sue. Yeah. Okay. Okie dokie. Thanks for that, Sue. Bye. That's okay. Bye. Right, next up we're going to uh, Anna, and Anna's out in Coburg. Good morning, Anna. Hello. Anna. Are you there, Anna? I might put Anna back on hold and and see if we can get her back. Um, We'll go to uh, Liz in Mount Eliza. Are you there, Liz? Hello. Yes, I am. Okay. Um, The first first, um, question was or query or statement was um the chemicals in the hair which you've already um discussed but wouldn't that be a problem with the garden i i don't use chemicals in my hair <laughs> no, nobody would ever have noticed actually roger neither do i but if you went to the hairdressers and Mate, maybe. yeah you would get a lot of hair been. that was potentially dyed and you know that's right uh, yeah. and treated yeah. in one way or another so i guess there is that issue although having said that if it's in the ornamental garden and you're not eating the plants coming mm. from it it's probably less of an issue than if you were using it in yeah. a veggie garden yes potentially so maybe caution the... on edibles mm. yeah 
Okay, and it wouldn't bother the, the actual soil itself. And the I don't think so. I don't think so. It'd be minute amounts. Yeah. And that's the other thing. I mean, there's chemicals in almost anything. And, you know, people mm. talk about using animal manures that come from specific places where you know they're not using any sort of chemicals with the animal, yeah. uh, which is pretty hard to do. Uh, but, you know, most manures and things that you might use in the garden, the amount of any sort of chemical within the manure is going to be so small mm. that the chances of it doing any harm are pretty pretty slim, I would right. have thought. So, right. Right. Yeah. And, and I would say to people, you know, if hair was available as a mulch for the garden, um, it's probably going to be one of the components I would use and not the only thing I would use. Not I, the only thing. Yeah, I yeah. always you know, yeah. try and make sure I use other materials all the time so that yeah. there's always something different going in. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, Graham, I... Um, Bought some beautiful roses last year up at Silky Farm. Brought them all the way. I didn't realise how far away you were. <laughs> <laughs> I said to my husband, why don't we go for a little trip up to Silky's? And as we're halfway there, where the bloody hell is it? So anyway, it was beautiful. We're only, um, only 50 minutes from Melbourne. Uh, we're in Mount Eliza. Oh, right, OK. Yeah, you can add another 50 minutes or more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. That was lovely. Um, the roses look... Stunning. So they are bloom. They bloom. They look absolutely magnificent. And by the way, I've got other roses in my little rose garden. Mm. But then um, they just dry up. Right. I'm watering. I'm mulching. They just they bloom. Right. One day they look absolutely magnificent, and the next day, in fact, I'm looking at one now, and every rose that looked stunning yesterday. Is, is paper dry. Right. The, around. What am I doing or not doing? No, no, you're not doing anything wrong. You're following Mother Nature. And roses tend to go into a bit of dormancy in, in the real hot weather. Um, so okay. you can actually trim them back. If you trim yeah. them back, especially where the flowers have been, which is yeah, called right. summer pruning, and, right. and, and feed them with liquid seaweed every fortnight. Okay. Okay. Right. And that'll bring on all the good new growth. And you'll right. notice that most times on the new growth, you'll never get any fungus problems. No, and I haven't had any this no. year. And yeah. maybe uh, because I'm not looking closely enough, I look at other people's rose gardens. There's a couple around here, and they don't seem to have this overnight paper-dry, dead mm. look. Every garden so is different. Okay, all right. Okay. okay. And so if, you, if you keep up it. the liquid seaweed, that'll help you with... The absorption of moisture, and that'll get, that'll liquid seaweed's got over 70 minerals in it in very minute amounts, and that helps the plant to um, re- recover from the hot weather, and and bring on that new growth. So would that just be sea salt type or power feed type? Um, yes, you can give them sea salt, and I'd I'd give them some power feed um, every fortnight from now on. Okay. All okay. Right. Okay. Great. Fantastic. Good. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, now, Anna um, from Coburg had to go, yeah. but uh, she's left us with her query. Um, she wants to know why her Boston ivy isn't sticking to the wall yet. She only planted it a couple of months ago. Almost answered her own question. Yes. Uh, Boston <laughs> ivy takes a wee while to work out where it is. So you don't try and stick it to the wall. You just lie it along the bottom of the wall and put a brick against it or something so it doesn't move and it will find its own way up the wall. If you get really hot sun on that wall uh, and it warms up, 
uh, until the Boston Ivy gets a bit of a cover over it to keep the warmth off the wall, you might have young shoots peeling off for a while until it gets established. But the more it goes up the wall, the more it will cover the wall, therefore will keep the heat off the wall, uh, and the better it will do. But it has to find its own way, and I generally suggest to people when they plant Boston Ivy to cover a wall, and for those who don't know, it isn't actually Ivy Ivy. Boston Ivy is a completely unrelated plant to the common English ivy, so don't get confused and think I'm suggesting people plant a potentially weedy species. Uh, uh, it does take a little while to catch hold, but once it does, it'll be fine. So just don't try and make it adhere to the wall. Just sit it along the bottom and let it find its own way. And hopefully before the end of autumn, it will have actually caught, and then it'll go into dormancy and just sit there over the winter. And come spring, while the weather's still cool, it'll hopefully run up the wall a fair way and start to shade the wall itself. So it should be fine. Excellent. Okay. Uh, now we've got uh, a couple more calls to get to. Next up we have uh, Sonia in Broadmeadows. Good morning, Sonia. Uh, good morning, uh, team. Uh, I, shall I ask my question? Yes, please, please do. Mm. Yes. Um, I'm trying to grow tomatoes in pots. I've got there in 12-inch pots. Mm-hmm. Um, and my query is, how do I best treat it? But particularly... I'm trying to prevent it getting a yellow uh, infection, which they've always had for the past years. So I'm trying to dust it, I think. But how do you dust it? I mean, how do you get underneath? Um, The flowers are just starting but not there, so how do I do that and how do I fertilise it? How do I look after these little critters? Well, tomatoes in pots. Uh, They are more challenging in lots of ways than tomatoes in the ground. So you've got to keep the water level nice and even. You don't want to get, let them dry right out or conversely keep them sodden wet. So watering is, is of one of the prime important things. As far as using tomato dusts and things, uh, they are more for insect problems as a rule than the yellowing funguses and viruses and things that tomatoes get. So the, the dusts aren't necessarily going to stop you from catching any viruses. If the tomatoes have been put into fresh potting mix, generally speaking, you shouldn't have a virus problem, I wouldn't have thought. But being in a pot too, they need fairly constant light feeding. So I would use the sort of liquid feeds like the um, power feeds, those sorts of things. Uh, I'd also sprinkle around some um, manure. You could pop around a little bit of cow manure or... Well, I get duck manure from the local duck farm, uh, and that seems to work quite well. Uh, So you need to keep a constant stream of gentle feeding going on. Um, Mm -hmm. They need to get plenty of sunlight, but they don't want to be where they're going to get really hot in the middle of the day, particularly if they're in Mm -hmm. black pots, because the pots can heat up if the sun shines directly on them, and that can also cause an issue. Some people actually surround their pots with tinfoil to actually um, sort of radiate the the sun back so that it doesn't warm up the pots quite so much. So they're the main things that you've got to keep an eye on. Um, And, yeah, if you've got damaged or yellowing leaves, take them off straight away uh, and discard them. Uh, And as long as you haven't planted tomatoes that are exceedingly large, fruiting, late-cropping tomatoes, you still should get a crop of tomatoes. Uh, But I'm quite pleased I didn't plant any late-fruiting tomatoes in the garden at home this year because even my normal fruiting ones are only just starting to get tomatoes. So it's going to be a late season, and if the autumn comes in too quickly, it could be a very short one. Mm. Are the yellowing leaves down at the base or up at the top all over the plant? 
for four years I've tried them, and I've tried them in pots too. It starts uh, down the base. Mm. Yes, it, well, it starts that in the base. Can can then, mean that there's not enough food for the plant. Mm. Mm. It can mean so. If I I see what, so, uh, yes, I see. What, what, yeah. Okay, and to, so as Stephen down, said, a liquid feed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, use one of the sort of liquid feeds and do it fairly regularly. Just mix it up in a watering can yeah. and water it on. Yeah. Right, okay. All right, and just do that regularly. Yes. And so this dusting, should I still do this? I don't think you need to. I, look, I, I mean, the, the days of using tomato dusts and things, and I'm not quite sure what are in most of the tomato dusts these days, but they were fairly toxic chemicals. They were. Yeah, I thought point. they'd taken it off the yeah, shelves. So, yeah, I'm mm. not sure I, I wouldn't would be, be using dusting it. the tomatoes. I mean, if I want... Uh, chemically infused vegetables I can go to a greengrocer and get those uh, so I'd much rather grow them at home without any help with chemicals and sundry things uh, so I, w- I think I would avoid using the tomato dusts and things mm. feed, feed the plant and build the resistance to yeah. any problems alright and, and uh, the, keep the pots separate that was my thought if one got contaminated anyway well, okay. you want to give them space between them each pot anyway so that the air can circulate around yes. and all that sort of thing. So certainly you don't want to have your pots one against the other. Um, mm. And, of course, if you do spread them around a bit, you're right in a sense. If something does get in, then it will have a chance of perhaps not so... Not spreading. Not spreading and infecting other plants. Yes. So, yeah, so yes. spread them around a wee bit, yes. And you just mentioned something which uh, are curious. Uh, with the pots, if you've got black pots, I assume that they would heat up the room. Mm. They do, so and, and, and that can be detrimental if they heat it up too much. Mm. That's so, right. So tomatoes, although they like plenty of sun, normally they're growing in the ground, so the ground isn't That's actually right. all that warm. I mean, it'll be warmer than it would be in the winter, obviously, because the soil does warm up, but it's not going right. to be hot. I mean, you can put your hands on the outside of a black plastic pot uh, when the sun's been shining on it in a while, and you can actually feel you like it's going to burn. Heat, yes. You know, you can really feel the heat. Now, root systems don't want that. No. So some protection around these pots of one has it like a wooden uh, trellis or... Uh, Look, anything, it could be a, a, another shrub in a pot. Uh, you could yeah. actually slide the pots into a garden bed behind shrubs so that the shrubs yeah. keep the pots from getting too hot but the tomato sits above. Uh, yeah. You know, anything that will keep the heat off the pot. Oh, thank you. And just one last little thing. Should I put some sulphate on to encourage them to flower? Uh, if you're trying to encourage them to flower, you would need a potash-based product. Um, and you can buy um, uh, sulphate of potash and murate of potash from different places, uh, from the big barns and from general garden centres. You could try a little potash, but the problem with potash is you probably need to put it on quite early in the season That's because right. it takes time to go through the plant. So by putting it on now, you're probably not actually going to gain anything. No, it's probably too late. It's probably too Good. late, yeah. Okay, look, thank you very much. Can I ask one last little thing? Around all my pots, because I have to have a lot of pots, I find that I get a build-up of cake of... Uh, well, sort of looks to me like it's, I wash out the nutrients and they collect all along the side of the pots. Yep. And the, is that what I'm doing? Is I'm... Is that what that... Yeah, it probably the is the, the nutrients in the, mm. in, in the potting mix mm. that is crusting with the pot. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah. And get rid of it and throw it out, don't reuse it. No, no, get rid yeah, of it. Good, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to bother you with this little question. That's fine, right. Sonia. No Anytime. Bo- no bother. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Talking tomatoes, we've had a caller ring in. Uh, she has a tomato plant that has four to five green tomatoes on it. They have not started to colour. 
Should she do anything to encourage the ripening of the tomatoes? Yeah, take them to Sydney for a holiday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, there's nothing much you can you do. Can't. It's, it's, it's just we would all make a fortune if we could ripen oh, tomatoes yeah, that, quickly. Yeah, that's right, exactly, with some sort of special treatment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just the season, you know, so we might be needing those green tomato pickle recipes again. Yes, we might. Potentially. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Okay, let's move on with a couple more callers. And, of course, next up we have Virginia. Good morning, Virginia. Virginia. Good morning. Ah, there Hi, you are you there? She's yes, shipping I'm on here. her coffee. <laughs> Go ahead. Virginia. I want to ask Gwen and Roger a question. Yeah, mm. you, you keep dropping out a bit. Just stand still if you're on your mobile. I'm on my mobile. Okay. okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Don't turn around. Just stay <laughs> I, still. I won't. Good. <laughs> I, um, I, one of my friends has got mistletoe birds and mistletoe, and I would really like mistletoe birds. Mm-hmm. His mistletoe is in seed. Can I put the seed, take some of the seed to my property? Yeah, look, people do this to some degree and they have success the whole thing is you've got to get it pretty early in the piece if you you've got to find you've got to find the ripe seed somewhere and it's got to be nice and um, it's got to be sticky, sticky and gooby sticky and jellyish, and so that it can just be well, you when just, you open the seed it's got to be gooby yeah they'd, they'd have to be really 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 ripe Virginia Right. And you don't um, want to open the seed because it's the sticky outside coating yeah. uh, that goes through the bird and then sticks the seed to the branch of yeah. the tree. That so, was why I wondered, does it have to go through the bird to actually... To it's, germinate. It's probably best. <laughs> yeah, so, yes, find your tame mistletoe bird and feed it some mistletoe seeds. Uh, look, I reckon it's still worth a crack, though, to just, oh, yeah. if you can find some ripe mistletoe and then just somehow or another tap it onto the tops of some branches of your trees. And mistletoes will grow on a whole range of different species of trees. They don't have to be on native eucalypts. I've seen them on pin oaks. I've seen them on all sorts of other trees, cherries, all sorts of things. Birches. Uh, Birches, yeah. And so it's just a matter of, I think, getting that seed because apparently the bird's droppings become very gelatinous and and they they rub it across the branches and and the seed sticks to the branch. I'm not sure that it needs the treatment of the bird's intestines to stay. The, uh, Could you use German another process. sticky substance? Well, it should have its own stickiness about the seed. That's uh, the thing. Uh, I yeah. think even just to stick, stick it on initially with a bit of glad wrap. Yeah, that's Loosely what I was around, have it under the, the glad wrap, but right. don't do it really tight, just so it holds it there. Yep. And or some uh, honey. I think yeah, that'd wash off fairly quickly, yeah, Virginia. I don't, think quick. I don't think it would be see, there long it, enough. It germinates very, very quickly. You can see the growth nearly occurring as you're looking at it. As a German. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I'll try. I'll put yeah, some in the cracks of some why of my not? trees. Yeah. 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 Well, they are inoculating trees all around the city now, I yeah, believe, that, with mistletoe right. um, mm. uh, to encourage that sort of habitat. Yep. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting because it wasn't that long ago I can remember there was a hue and cry about getting rid of that damn mistletoe off the native trees because it was having a bad I impact the on same. it. 
I remember that, Stephen. I remember yeah. having an argument with someone saying, well, you know, this is not a weed. No, no, no it's no. part of our environment. It's a, it's a native plant that uh, particularly native mistletoe birds require if the mistletoe was to disappear, so mm. would the bird. And also butterflies. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So there's some butterflies that just lay their eggs on mistletoe. Yeah. So it won't debilitate the plant that it's oh, on? Look, it does to a certain extent. I mean, yeah. it's going but to have an impact to a certain extent, but it's minimal. Mm. And it's probably more likely to be on a tree that's not too happy Weak. and sad mm-hmm. yes, anyway. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's part but, of the whole it, process um, of living yeah. and dying, really. Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, I've seen really heavily infested trees with mm. mistletoe that are struggling to stay alive and will probably eventually die. Mm. And then, of course, the mistletoe dies with it because mm. uh, it loses its host. Um, but, you know, it's all part of the natural mm-hmm. thing. Mm. So I don't have an issue with mistletoe growing on no. things. And sometimes the, the root would say call a horstoria, it'll only go so far into the branch of a tree right. and then that branch will die. Right. So it can be okay. You know, mm. it doesn't affect Yeah, it just yeah, it, it doesn't gets go rid of it. It doesn't affect the whole tree. It doesn't go through the whole tree. No, yeah. it just grows. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the mistletoe bo- bird is so beautiful. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And look, you get that opportunity to get a big snog under the mistletoe <laughs> as well. So, you know, it could be a win win. I think I can do without that, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Dear. All right, thank you very much. All okay. right, well, good luck with that one. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Okay, next up we're going to uh, Carol in East Bentley. Good morning, Carol. Morning, Pam. Good morning, everyone. I wanted to ask if I could three questions. The first one's about a lemon tree. I've got it in a pot and it's flourishing. I've, I've, I've um, planted so many lemons and put them in pots and they die, but I want to put it in the garden. Can I put it in a mixed shrub bed? As long as the shrubs aren't too voracious. The lemon Not trees, up against the trunk, I wouldn't yeah, have Yeah, yeah. I, I, lemons like a little bit of their own space. Mm. They have a fibrous root system that sits fairly close to the surface. So... There's no reason why you can't have some things growing around lemon trees. I mean, my citrus trees are in a border where there's perennials and bulbs and, and a few minor shrubs and things. I've got some tree peonies growing nearby, um, and they don't compete with the lemon trees. Um, but, it, you know, if you've got really strong-rooted shrubs around them, then there will be some competition uh, that will be detrimental to your lemon tree. So you need to be cautious of that. Okay. Well, what's the best? Is, is an east... Uh, north area, a good area for it to, to plant it? Lemon trees like lots of sun. So I would be planting them where they get as much sun as possible throughout the day. Um, so the aspect's not so important. It's a matter, a matter of what light they get from above. Um, because sometimes a, an easterly aspect will get sun right up until sort of after midday or whatever, which is often quite enough. Um, uh, but then you can plant something in a northerly aspect that's got a tree over it. Mm. canopy over the top and it gets too much shade so the actual aspect's not so important as the amount of sun and very very good drainage yes they do need good drainage oh thank you also Stephen um, a lilac you told me if the flowers came out Mm. and then they just tried to die you Mm. know they never well they never came out they were there but (laughs) if you understand what I mean and you told me to put some dolomite on it Mm -hmm. and uh, it worked. It was wonderful. I got some flowers 
you know, also. Good. And I, I can either take credit for that or it was a happy accident. <laughs> no, you, you can take credit for it. You told me to do it, which is, is grand, and, and it's grown just it just took off yeah but what i wanted to know should i put it on every year oh or? no 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 every few no, just years once. you know once is probably possibly enough because the tree has now settled down but if it starts to show any sign of not flowering well again well then i would then do it at that time i wouldn't do it as a regular thing okay and it's got little white pins on it i don't know is that some sort of insect or mm, possibly it could be a mealybug or a uh it could be a thrip or something like that uh without seeing it i'm not too sure what it is but most of those sort of bugs and pests and things aren't going to t- cause a lilac any serious Trouble. detriment so i wouldn't worry too much about it i don't think thanks just another one also if i could ask roses i planted a rose in a and put new soil in it in a place where I had a, a another climbing rose and this one won't thrive at all and it's uh, one of those um, iceberg climbing roses right. and I'm just wondering could I feed it sea soul sort of give it a real heavy drink all the time yes, would it I, help yes I'd, I'd um, fortify it with li- liquid seaweed and I'd get some, some power feed with the liquid seaweed in it as well. Oh, yes, I've got that. Yes. All right, and if you've got some compost, put that all around the, the base of the plant and then pull some straw over the top of the compost so it won't dry out. Oh, right. oh well, thank you, yes. Okay. Yeah, wonderful. But use your liquid thank seaweed uh, or your power feed at least once a fortnight now. Once a fortnight? Yes. Okay. All over oh, the leaves and all over the root base. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Okay, then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye, Pam. Now, um, a caller on the outside line uh, from Footscray has noticed small black spiders with red backs, but they're not the red back spider species. They're all over many plants throughout her garden, particularly on her tomatoes. Well, if it is a true spider, they're not doing any harm because spiders are... Carnivorous. They're not. Um, they're not plant eaters. So they could be eating aphids, and they could be eating all sorts of other things. So if it, if it is in fact a spider, don't worry about it. Simple as that. Uh, but, but but the big but is that some people confuse things that aren't spiders for spiders. That's right. And so if it's some other sort of bug then there could be an issue. Yep. So that needs to be defined whether it is, in fact, a true spider. Um, and normally they have eight legs and, uh, you know, it's got only six legs and it's probably some other sort of bug. Uh, uh, I'd, I would want to see what it looked like. I think I she made. should perhaps put a couple in a jar and take them down to her local nursery for ID. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because there's no point in starting some sort of eradication program if it's actually... Not if they're genuine spiders. Yeah, if it's something that's not doing any harm and, in fact, could be doing some good, then you're better to leave well enough alone. And, in fact, even if it's something that's doing some harm, you'd need to see the harm actually happening before I'd actually take any sort of remedial action because there's no point in, in... Getting rid of an ant with a sledgehammer. But it definitely needs ID. Yeah, I would do that first. Because if it's a mite of some sort, Mm. um, that could be a problem. And it certainly won't be red-back spiders. I mean, you don't get them in quantity all over your plants. No. They live under things. They like to get under tins and in your old dunny if you've still got one and places (laughs) like that. So, uh, yeah, so it certainly won't be a red-back spider, but um, it may not be a true spider, in which case it could be an issue and you need to look into it. Yeah. 
Okay, and uh, our good friend Ken from Sunshine just wants to wish the panel all the best and say welcome back for the new year. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. That's That's very kind of you. Um, Now, uh, we've got uh, another 10 minutes or so. Uh, If people do want to jump on the phones and give us a call, that number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. We've got Stephen, Gwen and Roger and Graham Sargent. Or if you want to have a chat to Carol on the outside line, 94198377. Just uh, before I go to the next caller, I thought we could do with a, a good news story uh, that's come about because of the bushfires. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I picked up on this story. Um, I, cr- I have to credit it to Eric Chung um, from CNN, but I thought it, uh, listeners would be interested to know that extensive water channels built by Indigenous Australians thousands of years ago to trap and harvest eels for food have been revealed after the wildfires have burnt away thick vegetation. Uh, now, the, uh, the cultural landscape consisting of chan- channels, uh, weirs and dams built from volcanic rocks uh, is one of the world's most extensive and oldest aquaculture systems, according to UNESCO. Uh, it was constructed by the Gundamara people more than 6,600 years ago, so it's older than, the, uh, than Egypt's pyramids. And while the aquatic system was known to archaeologists, it was added to UNESCO's World Heritage List last July, additional sections uh, were revealed by the fires. There you go. Actually, the fires are something we should talk about at some stage in the program with regards to home gardeners and refurbishing mm. after fire. So it's probably a topic we should handle. We at some did point. actually try to tackle mm. it quite extensively last ah. Sunday, but I'm always happy to, yeah. to cover well, the subject again. Well, having lived through the thing, and I was looking yes, at it more have. from. Um, you know, garden refurbishing, particularly, you know, exotic plants and things that have gone through fire and, yep. and how they react and all that sort of thing. And, the, and uh, I certainly think after the Ash Wednesday fires, there was quite a number of surprises about what or what didn't okay. do well. So it might be something we can have a chat Let's about. Let's do that in two weeks' time when all you're right. back on. Yeah, I think that's okay. a good idea. Yep. All right. Brilliant. We've got a few minutes left. Yep. Have we got no, any more calls? We do have another call. We've got our good friend Karen in West Footscray. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, all. Hi. Um, I had a, um, listening to 774 yesterday, they said about the, the worm guy was on, he said if you've, worms have died in your worm farm, um, bag them up and get rid of them, don't put them into the garden because of pathogens. So our worms unfortunately met their end with the heat. We dug a big hole in the garden and buried them. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that would be fine for the garden, but have I done the wrong thing? I, I did, missed him. I have to say, I, I was only coming into the studio while he was still on board, so I didn't right. hear that conversation. Um, I would have put them in the garden. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't imagine why there would be a particular issue. I mean, if you've got a worm farm and you're going to start it again because your worms have all died, I can't see how putting the dead worms and the worm compost and anything else that was in your original worm farm into the garden is going to cause any issues. I actually don't well, understand that. I didn't think so either. But I, and I'm not putting it on my. Oh, edibles, so it's just in the front garden. But even your edibles, so I, I can't understand why a dead worm is going to be a problem. I mean, they die all the time in the ground, and and yeah. they turn into nutrients which your plants mm. live off. So I'm, I'm not well, quite sure the what fact the fact that they were rank. 
Yeah. The smell was the most hideous. Smell. Oh yeah, look, and and that's you know anything that's rotting down is going to smell a bit watery, yeah. but that doesn't mean your plants won't like it just because we find yeah. it a bit offensive. So what? I'm surprised that he suggested you needed to get rid of it because I I think anything that was alive and is organic um, has its potential. Back I mean, in the surely day. you could have at least composted them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah put I it through the compost tank. Yeah, yeah, I would have. Yeah, thrown yeah, it I, into I love them in the compost tank. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I would have done that, and and their live worm relatives in there probably would have cleaned up the mess in due course. So well, we didn't kill them all. There's still some live in the worm farm. But, yeah, I thought it was fine. The other question I had, Graham Thomas, that um, established Rose, turned up its heels and died, and the others um, all around it are fine. Any idea, Graham? Graham Thomas, the Rose? Yep. Yes. Well, sometimes it does happen. Um, how's the soil around the base of the plant where, where it died? Look, it was. It wasn't dried out. It wasn't super wet. It was. It seemed like fine. You know, the others mm. are probably. Um, there's a tree not so far away, but it's been there a long time, and, and not and not a hell of a you know long time, but just mm. a long time. And it was. was I thought it'd be fine, but um, I didn't. The only thing I didn't do when I pulled it out because I was so disgusted that it had turned up its heels. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Was um, I didn't smell around the the roots and stuff to see if there was any particular smell. I couldn't see anything else on it. Right. But I haven't planted anything else where it was for the time being. How often do you water in that area? Uh, probably twice a week, yeah, depending you, on the, the temperatures. Decent water can twice a week. Cut back your watering to once a week. Okay. Uh, amazingly enough, in this weather, we've been getting reports from people where they've actually been overwatering, and uh, okay. that can cause problems with them, with All roses. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. And fun. if you plant anything else in there, you need to take out at least a half a barrel load of soil. Put that yep. in your compost heap and replace it with some fresh soil, preferably compost. Yeah, I wouldn't bring soil in because I just bring no. a whole lot of weed and everything else in That's if right. I bring yeah, soil yeah. in. Yeah, no, best yeah. Thank you very much, gang. Okay, That's pleasure. good on you, Karen. Thank you very much. Bye. See ya, bye. Now, uh, John Arnott has phoned in, he's been listening, to say that the City of Melbourne have worked out the techniques for mistletoe. Oh, fantastic. So, um, I guess, Virginia, if you want to contact someone at uh, City of Melbourne... And, uh, have yeah, because I'm sure them. they don't have a whole pile of tame mistletoe birds that they no. pass the seeds through before <laughs> they get stuck to the plane trees or wherever else they're growing it. They might surprise us. Yeah, well, they might, <laughs> but it does seem like a sort of a roundabout way of dealing with it if there's a, a straightforward technique. Yeah, so there we go. All right, fantastic. All right. Um, have you got Yeah, anything? I've got more plants. Oh. oh yeah, I've, I've got stuff. Always okay, make, always so we make sure quite I have cover en- everything. No, I always make sure we have enough stuff. Good, good, good. Um, well, let's go for it. All right. Well, this is a plant that I imported years ago. It's a Berberus, um, and it's a hybrid Berberus. It's a cross between Thumbergii and Vulgaris, and it goes under the name of Berberus ottoiensis, uh, and it's a variety called Silver Mile. And Silver Mile is a burgundy-leafed Berberus that has pinky-white marbling of variegation through the foliage. Now, it's not going to be everybody's taste. A lot of people don't like variegations. I can understand that. Um, I quite like it. And it has proved to be quite tough because a lot of the uh, Berberus... um, Thumbergii varieties that are out there, so things like um, uh, Hellman's Pillar, um, Purpurea, Aurea, there's a whole range of, uh, of Thumbergii hybrids. They burn when we get 45 degrees. They really don't cope with that excessive heat. But the hybrids, the Ottoiensises, seem to go through it with aplomb. Uh, and uh, a good friend of mine uh, 
bought one of these from me years ago when I first released it, and she's got it in her garden in Melbourne. She's pulled out all her other berberuses that were burning when we got the 45-degree days, and she just keeps silver mild in her garden, and it's doing exceedingly well. It can grow to a shrub about two metres. Uh, it's very prunable. Uh, it does get little lemony flowers on it, as a lot of the berberuses do. Uh, we'll occasionally throw the odd little red berry, but you don't see a lot of them. It has small prickles on the stems, um, and at least differently to roses, they tend to be straight, so they go in and come straight out again. Oh, right. Instead of hooking in you and staying put. Uh, so I'm not particular. It's actually funny with thorns. People will say, oh, no, I'm not having that as prickly. But they will plant another rose. Now, what is it about roses that they're allowed to have prickles and people still plant them? And other plants, no. I don't quite get it. But anyhow, I think it's a lovely berberus. It colours beautifully in the autumn, so the foliage goes lovely colours. Um, so it's a good all-round shrub, and it would be a good thing along a boundary fence or something to give you a bit of summer screening, or just for its interesting foliage, textures and colours in a mixed border. So that's berberus ottoiensis silver mile. Brilliant. So really pretty shrub. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about that, Roger? Yeah, fine. We're just uh, off offline. Um, Gary suggested, you know, if people are growing tomatoes in pots, get a, a larger pot, put your tomato in pot inside that, and even to scrunch up paper oh, around yes, to keep it. Keep the heat away. Just from keep the, the heat away as from an insulator. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah so I think that's a great suggestion. Yeah, yeah that would work quite well. Old yeah. egg cartons. Yeah. Because they also hold water. Yeah. Keeps it Good okay. idea. Good. And very quickly, we're going to go to uh, Ron in Doncaster. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead. Yes, um, I'd like to ask uh, Roger or um, also uh, Gwen or Jeff Suits uh, about a hardened merger violation. Place okay. I, I, yeah, go ahead. Um, I've, the, the, actually, it's a, a species or uh, type called, I think it's Marion's Marvel, a name like that. Okay. So it's not okay. standard one, I guess. Uh-huh. But um, I'm inquiring about whether it's suitable to be placed on a, an east-facing garage brick wall, which is yep. um, probably about two and a half, three metres high before it gets to windows. Yes. And uh, it gets sun in the summer. I've checked it uh, yeah. yesterday to about 1 p.m. Uh-huh. But, of course, shade in the afternoon because the face is due east. Yep. And I uh, was wondering, would that uh, grow suitably there should and climb? Be, should be fine. Should be fine. Well, you yeah, will need something right. to grow it up, of course, yeah, if it's yeah. just a, a wall. Oh, yes, I'd yeah. be training it up on, on some sort of yeah. wire. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, and the other one is the... Sorry. Go on. Go ahead. No, I was just going to uh, say, I, that'll be fine. Oh, that's all good. And the other one is the, the soil that uh, was actually the just fill left over from a, uh, a cut when the, the house was built. Um, as poor clay mm-hmm. mixed with a little bit of topsoil, but mainly clay fill. Yeah. Uh, would that need to be... Um, suitably uh, uh, treated be- before no, I plant it? I think that should be fine. Yeah, probably grow right. fine. I mean, you can do the work <laughs> uh, and the plant yeah. will probably grow faster. Um, yes. But, no, but they're pretty tough, aren't they, the old hybrid? Oh, yes, oh yeah, that'll be fine. And they... with it where I'm planting it. I've got some compost. I, I have myself quite a bit of that, so I use a bit of that with it. Perhaps just up, a, I, I w- Yeah, I wouldn't put too much compost in there. Just a would little you? bit maybe, just to mix up mm-hmm. the topsoil with the clay to some degree. And it should yes. be fine. And have you heard of that uh, species called Marion's Marvel? Well, no, I was recommend. I'm just, I don't know, Gwen Maeve. No, I think Marion's Marvel is a Coria. Um, oh, is it? Oh. Yeah. Well, it's a name like that. that it's just, it? I know it wasn't the normal um, Okay. There, there are quite a few different selections of Hardenburgers around yeah. now. Yeah, there's so, yeah, there, isn't there? Yeah, so um, I'm not, not 
familiar with that name uh, on the Harbour yes. Beach. Yeah. I see. Does it need a, a decent, like a fairly strong trellis? Like um, there are some products you can get that uh, attaching to brick walls that uh, which are rather like uh, powder uh, coated uh, wire or strong yeah, wire. Yeah. Look, even if you just it's a brick wall, right? Yeah, it's a, a solid uh, brick yeah. wall. Yes. Even if you just. Uh, Put some wires in, you know, to drill in and put get some uh, even fairly large galvanised nails into the brick wall in, with with the fixtures in there, and then just string wire, say around about five centimetres or so out. Um, that should be fine. I see. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much. I don't need better reassurance. Good on okay. you. Good on you. Bye. Many thanks. Bye for now. All right, we've just about yeah. run out of time. Um, Roger, do you want to just quickly repeat uh, the exhibition that's coming oh, up? Oh, fine, yeah. Have you got the details yep. there in front yeah, of you? Yeah, I have. This is the Australian Plants Revealed exhibition being held at the Maroondah Federation Estate, Estate Gallery in 32 Greenwood Avenue, Ringwood, from 17th of February to 17th of April, where it's a marvellous exhibition of specimens collected on the... The Cook Voyage with Banks and Salander. Um, so that's open on Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm Saturday in the afternoon, but closed on public holidays. And if you want to get further information, if you go to the APS Vic, the Australian Plant Society of Victoria website, if you just put in APS Vic, Org. It'll come up and it'll have the information about this exhibition called Australian Plants Revealed. Excellent. Well, we have run out of time. A huge thank you to the team and also to Carol and Louise who've been handling all the calls for us this morning. We will be back at 7.30 next Sunday morning. So until then, bye for now. <laughs>